we went ahead and bought a Christmas tree this this year, like a proper yeah. Christmas tree, and uh, we're only in a small small place, and we actually <laughs> got it back, and it would have been uh, 10:30 p.m. or something, and yeah. we we had to throw out the lounge <laughs> to fit the Christmas tree. <laughs> oh no! So. 10.30 at night, we jumped on like a buy swap and sell page and we're trying to offload this couch. And um, it was funny because there was actually three guys who had just moved into an apartment together. And yeah. I could imagine them just sitting on the ground, no furniture, no nothing. Like, oh, yeah. this, is, this is pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, they commented on it and said, can we pick it up tonight? And I was like, oh yeah, sure. So <laughs> I had it offloaded in like 30 minutes. And, um, That's so good. Yeah, made room for it. It's pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. So I um I read the book on Jim Simons this week. Mm, that'd be good. You you listened to the podcast with Chat with Traders as well, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was quite interesting. Um, I I know you said a couple of weeks ago near where in, when it came out that someone said it was the best trading book they'd ever read. Yep. And having read it now, I don't know how they got to that. Oh, right. It, it didn't talk about trading all that much. Hmm. Um, it spoke... Uh, you, you can tell that uh, Jim Simons made it very difficult to get any information, mm-hmm. specifically about the firm. And so there was a fair bit of information that came in from, from when he was younger and from his academic career. Mm-hmm. But once you move into the firm, it's a lot about the interplay between the other people within the firm. You kind of lose, like he moves out of the story a little bit. And I think that's because Simons didn't want to talk about it. Yep. And then towards the end of the book, so the last quarter of the book, it actually talks a lot about sort of the external views of the firm and how certain people within the firm use their wealth to like support Donald Trump or support the leave campaign for Brexit. And so it got fairly political there. Mm, right. Um, so yeah, I don't know how you get to it's the best trading book you've ever read because it didn't, it had some interesting sort of tidbits, but clearly Simon's didn't want, um, didn't want the book to be written. Maybe it was a bit of paid publicity. Yeah, um, yeah, it was. It was the same. I watched. I watched one of his interviews on, I think it was Number File, on yeah. YouTube, and it was the same thing. It was he tried to ask him about obviously the internal structure of like what they were sort of doing there, and he wasn't able to really comment on anything. He's basically he's basically saying like we we keep everyone like everyone has to sign non disclosure agreements. Yeah. Because we can't, we can't do a patent. Because as soon as we do that, uh, someone's just going to tweak the the system just a tiny little bit, so that it's not the same, and then use that. So <clears throat> yeah, everyone and patent just, applications take forever, and yeah, exactly, and they don't last forever, and you know. So he just opted yeah. instead for um, just non-disclosure agreements across the across the firm. Yeah. And that was quite an interesting part of it, actually, where they had several members of the firm who were, look, their their tactics for getting the non-disclosure agreements and non-compete agreements signed were 
pretty underhanded, to be honest. Um, they would often, when they brought someone on, they would just kind of slip it into the pile of like employment documents. They wouldn't necessarily spell out that that's what they're signing. Um, and there were some people who realized that um, and w- didn't sign them. And because they'd done it in such an underhanded way, they didn't actually notice that they hadn't signed it. And so there was some, it was, as specifically the non-compete, I don't think the NDA was, was not signed. But then there were some instances where there was conflict between different people within the firm and they couldn't fire the people because if they fired them, they would go and compete. And like, it's difficult to prove that someone else has been using the informa- like the strategies or whatever. Exactly. Like it, it's... It'd like be very NDAs difficult. are all, all good and well, but like they kind of don't really work. Yeah. It um, was it was at the beginning he said when he first started out, it was more about getting people that um he could trust and people that were good at their job, basically. Yeah. When he first started forming it. But he it was interesting. He said um in the interview he said for the first two years, uh he was a discretionary trader. Yeah. Before he actually moved into the quant trading. Yeah, he was, and um, that was that was kind of the interesting thing. Is it was the he is made out because he's sort of the head of the fund and he founded it. He's made out to be the mastermind behind it, but there were definitely other players who played a big role in how successful Rentec became uh, because they would get obsessed with certain things. Like one of the traders got really obsessed with just collecting data. And so when, and this, they started during, I think, the 70s. And so computerized trading wasn't really a thing yet. Um, they were, so they, they would have to call their broker and get the trades done through their broker. Um, and so they were using like end of day prices effectively that were, or they were using up to the minute prices at one point, but their models were running on fairly limited data. Yeah, and one of their uh, traders got obsessed with going back and collecting data about different different assets uh, over like sort of the past, or, like however much data he could get and however granular he could get it, and that literally meant buying like rolls of magnetic tape with the data on it, and then compiling that and getting it all sorted. And so he had some people around him who got very obsessive about certain things which then turned out to be very important but not they didn't necessarily plan to do it because it would be important yeah it just they got they got a little bit lucky and so yeah he didn't come across as kind of this mastermind behind it although the one thing that he did sort of i think his management of the, the risk was very important where there were certain times when he decided to take the risk off and not let the computers trade it mm-hmm. um, during times of like certain mar- market stress. Yeah. And if, I mean, you can't like play with the counterfactuals too much, but you don't know, like if he hadn't done that, would the the firm have gone bust at some point? Yeah. Um, it's They're an interesting firm too, because they're, they're 100% based on the... Um, system like they're not discretionary at all no so 100 percent, which is um very different and yeah he was saying in the he was saying in the interview basically his ability <clears throat> was 
to bring smart people together. And he'd already had like a pretty decent network of mathematicians from his prior work. Yeah, was well, he was, a, he was a brilliant mathematician. Yeah, he um, was. Like, and he published papers that had certain theorems in them that are still widely used in physics. Um, and so, yeah, he's a very accomplished mathematician and he ran a university for a while which is where he sort of got the connections and was able to bring on very, uh, very good uh, mathematicians to, to work on the fund. And what was quite interesting is he took a lot of people from IBM who were working on uh, natural language processing mm-hmm. and getting computers to recognize speech because what effectively happened was that the, the problem of like solving asset price movements is fairly similar to the problem of solving uh like decoding what people are saying because at least at least the way it was approached back then was that if you can identify one word you can then draw up a range of probabilities for what word might come next because of the way sentences are structured and so there are some words which just like would very rarely ever appear together, whereas some other words might appear together much more frequently. And so it's constructing these probabilities. I think it's using hidden Markov chains to do that, which is what at least Rentex early strategies were based on is kind of using if X thing happens and this is what the price movement is today, what's the range of probabilities of what it will do tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was quite interesting that they, they did that. But it didn't provide, like, the insight into the trading systems that I was hoping for. Mm-hmm. But it was it was an interesting book. Um, if, like, from the risk management perspective, it was quite interesting seeing how they, when the model wasn't working how it was supposed to work and it was producing these ridiculous losses yeah how they tossed up whether they should just trust the model and hope that the model would self adjust did they or if they did it, should in the book did it say anything about uh like time frames that they hold or yeah so it said like that they that? were holding uh the stocks for around two days yeah on average yeah um, but uh, that changed over time um from obviously when they had to call into their broker and then as they transitioned into electronic trading, uh, it changed um, as their strategies then adapted to the new technology. But yeah, I think it was it was about two days that they were holding a stock on average. It's interesting that they're at, they're at the sweet spot in terms of how much capital they can actually trade with now. Like you yeah. said, he was saying you can't really get much larger than what we are now and, and do what we're doing. Yeah, and that's one of the things is he... He struggled with that several times throughout the throughout the life of the fund, where it would get to a point, and one of the big ones is they started trading in commodities markets, and mm-hmm. they got to a point where they just couldn't trade commodities markets because they were too big, mm-hmm. and their strategies weren't working anymore. Because if you're if you're trading pork bellies, <laughs> there's not a huge market for pork bellies, and so it's it's more difficult and then they had a really a really tough time creating an equity strategy that would actually work mm-hmm. um and that was because they were approaching it from a mathematical perspective 
they weren't necessarily aware of the other strategies that were out there. And so they replicated a lot of other strategies that were out there. Um, factor, like factor investing was one of those. Uh, they tried at one point and it didn't really work. Yep. And if they if they had looked at what other people were doing, they might have not tried to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, then when they were able to get an equity strategy together that worked, they were able to take on more size. And now I think they just give back the proceeds of the fund each year. Yeah. Um, and then keep the fund at the same size. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty. It's still. It's still pretty large. They're making some some decent profit there oh yeah yeah <laughs> i mean it's the same thing that we were talking about i think last week about buffett mm. is that i think he may be someone who he hasn't been able to identify that he's got too big yeah or at least he's not acting on the fact that he's got too big and he can't make those same investments anymore mm-hmm. um, and so he's happy to take on the money but he's not able to produce that return anymore yeah um, like we saw last week where he, he he's not able to actually buy the companies because the valuations are stretched uh, in his opinion and it means that he's not actually able to invest. And so that growing cash pile, everyone talks about it being that he's being smart and not investing at stretched valuations. But I think there is also an element of there are investments he wants to make, but he can't get into them. Yeah. Um, and so it's not entirely by his choice that he's got such a large cash pile. Yeah, definitely. So uh, there was an interesting article in The Economist this week on the World Trade Organization and how it's there's a very high chance that it's going to become completely useless uh, by the end of this year. Okay. Um, and it, it was a fascinating article and it's kind of a little bit scary because I think 96% of all all trade is overseen by the World Trade Organization. And effectively, the way it works is that the WTO has a bunch of members and they post a bunch of rules for how tariffs and all these sorts of things should be should be used. If a, if a country uses tariffs in a way that is uh, against these rules, then the the country that's lost out can go to the WTO and lodge a formal complaint. And the idea is that they don't retaliate with higher tariffs of their own. Um, So they go to the WTO, lodge a formal complaint. And then if it comes out that one one or other party is unhappy with the result, they can then take it to an appellate body, which effectively has a bunch of judges on it. Um, And I think there's supposed to be i don't don't even know how many judges there are supposed to be but currently there's three judges on on the panel and they then hear the cases and uh give their give their judgments now two of those judges are set to resign uh fairly soon i think that they're set to resign at the end of the year um and the US being the US, they have veto power to stop anyone else getting onto the panel. And that seems to be what they're doing. They're stopping, they're, they're going to stop any any new judges being appointed. So there's only going to be one judge, which basically means that the, the appellate body can't operate. Mm-hmm. And so the whole WTO or, uh, structure 
is going to fall apart. It's no, it's no longer mm. going to operate. Um, and it's very much in line with what we're seeing the U.S. do in terms of the the U.S.-China trade war. And then this year we've seen, I mean, sorry, this week we've seen, I think it was Mexico and Brazil. Um, he's raised steel tariffs on them. And so it, it seems that he definitely wants to move outside of the WTO framework, which, like, without taking a position on the WTO, because I don't know how how sort of good the the rules are under it it may not work but it definitely seems to be marking the end of the current current iteration of the wco Jeez, it's yeah yeah i mean it's it's gonna be interesting going forward with all the tariffs then yeah like because you've you've got the you've got the tariffs coming on well is it confirmed yet the tariffs for the 15th of december yet um, so are they definitely saw, going on or well as as of right now they are but mm-hmm. there's always the opportunity for some sort of agreement to be reached that those tariffs aren't going to be applied um, but like I think I saw a report on Friday that said I think uh, is it Mnuchin mm-hmm. was saying that there are there's a good chance that there will be an agreement reached but I mean you don't know how much you can really trust that. Yeah, um, and I mean, so, I, I feel like Trump would be feeling quite strong with with uh, what's what's been going on with the job support as well. Yeah, because I mean, I, I checked the I checked the market last night while I was at work, and I noticed it was absolutely ripping. So I had to have a look, and jobs yeah. were two hundred twenty six thousand versus one eighty seven forecasted. Yeah. So I don't so, know. Maybe maybe it gives you more ammo to sort of. Uh, put those tariffs on because of the um the job market's absolutely um cruising yeah yeah i think that they're in a fairly strong position in terms of that and i guess we now that we're moving into 2020 we have to really seriously consider the fact that he is approaching an election an election and so those sorts of numbers are going to become more and more important um and so especially sort of there's still time so before the before the election i think we've got two more courses worth of data that's actually going to come out and so if like it seems unlikely but if the us was to slip into a recession within those within those two quarters it would be fairly damaging to his campaign and so it will be interesting to see what happens um with that from all the numbers I'm seeing, it, it seems that they are in a fairly strong economic position right now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to argue with it. Yeah, with I mean, it's cruising along. They've got, fair, they've got very weak inflation, but everywhere has really weak inflation. Yep. And growth isn't spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there was an interesting report that came out from, from the Fed that they may be introducing a variable... Uh, inflation target okay um, did, did you see well, that get, no. get posted anyway what's that based on like how what causes it to vary so basically right now they've got a inflation target of two percent mm-hmm. and what they're saying is that I, I think they're going to enact it starting next year and effectively if they undershoot then they're going to if say if they undershoot by 0.2 percent 
then they'll set the target to be 2.2% to sort of make up for that lost time. And so oh. then they'll be working to try and get a higher inflation target. But then obviously, once they're sort of above that, then over time, they want the average to be 2%. But they because there's been sort of a long period of undershooting yeah. that target, they want to push it up to sort of try and uh, bring that average back to 2%. Which is interesting. Yeah, I Um, think that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, in the context of monetary policy, it's kind of a forward guidance. Like, yeah, it's a a forward guidance tool that allows them some flexibility um, and allows people to kind of forecast more cuts, which may or may not happen. But at least there's... uh, We've seen evidence certainly of forward guidance and people expecting cuts to happen mm-hmm. actually does produce some of the effects of the actual cut. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that that's where the biggest sort of um, the biggest benefit of that variable policy will come from. It'd be interesting if like you have another have many years of underperformance and then <laughs> one year you have to get like four or five percent inflation just to bring it back to your average yeah so i don't know i don't know how we or how that's going to work if they do continue to undershoot because you would imagine that they've got some they've got a reason why they're not hitting the two percent target Mm -hmm. Uh, they seem to be struggling and all around the world they're struggling so if they do continue to undershoot and undershoot are they going to have to raise that or they're going to backtrack on the policy and not or that maybe they provide like a cap. They they say that they, there's a range that they'll be willing to accept. I feel like um, there should be there has to be some sort of upper upper limit. Like you can't you can't have underperformance for like a couple of decades and then go okay, well, I need twenty percent now. Yeah. You know? So um, I don't know. And a higher inflation is just is not going to. Is I don't think that it would go down f- very well. Be, it'd be harder to rein with, in with anyone i think yeah after a little while depending yeah, on how high it goes to shoot up and yeah i mean paul volcker took serious pain when he like really ramps up interest rates to uh, contain the inflation of the 70s mm. um, and so i guess they just want to be more aggressive they're really scared of you know going into deflation or something that this is one way where they can sort of be more aggressive is that we haven't we haven't done well enough this year that now we're going to have to step it up be accountable and and try and get it for the next year i think there's also a element of the fact that the uh not the rba that the fed needs some legitimacy when they say that they're going to do a thing people need to believe that they can do the thing (laughs) um yeah and that's part of why it's part of why they have hypothesized that the, the Fed did so well through the GFC was that they people had the confidence in them to get things done. Um, and so if the central bank, wherever that central bank is, continues to undershoot targets that they say they're trying to reach, like it's, it reduces the, the sort of... Um, what's the word like it it reduces confidence in in the bank to actually get it done and at the end of the day 
they can adjust interest rates, but if it doesn't produce the effects that they're saying it's going to produce and people don't think it will, then they're not going to react to the the interest rate changes like the bank is hoping. And that then creates like a, a negative feedback cycle where they continue to undershoot so they have to cut rates, but then people think that cutting rates isn't working and they don't expect it to work, so they don't react in the way that the right, they're yeah, supposed they should, to. Yeah. And so they continue to undershoot. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be it'll certainly be interesting to get a bit more information about it, uh, what their sort of the actual policy will be, um, and then I guess it, it'll be interesting to see what if it actually gets enacted and where they allow the, those interest rates to get to get to because they don't have that much uh, that many shots left. To, to actually cut rates and obviously they're, they're looking at QE and all these things but um, I think it's a, a bit of a dangerous time for central banks now sitting so low definitely towards the end of a cycle unless we start ticking back up into growth and they can hike the rates they're not going to have that many tools available to them if a crisis does hit. We need something, some technology that can come on increase our productivity. Yeah. Just hold yeah, out until hold out until then. <laughs> yeah. This fingers then, fingers crossed. Otherwise, we're going to get a complete collapse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's hope that doesn't happen. No. Um, um, so, did you have a look at <laughs> the Elon Musk trial? I I saw a little bit of it. I knew I knew that he was doing it, but I didn't really sort of follow the result of of it. Yeah. So. Um, I think it's in jury stage now. They've had their closing arguments, and effectively, like it's the the trial to do with his tweets calling the the Thai cave diver a pedo guy, um, mm-hmm. which is generally not advisable. Um, <laughs> not not advisable to do. Apparently, he won the trial though. Oh, is that? Yeah. So apparently, it was it was over on the fourth day. Yeah, so it's o- it's over. I don't think um, I'm gonna bring it up because I actually haven't seen anything so, since. Yeah, they they said that they won the. Oh yeah, he has um, won. I didn't realize though that uh, I didn't realize that the plaintiff was actually seeking 190 million dollars in damages. Yeah, that seems a bit excessive for being called a pedo. Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't know where he came up with that number, but. Well, I think that there's it's punitive damages, um, and then there was another there was another number that was much lower that was actual and expected damages. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, it was he asked for five million in actual damages, thirty five million in assumed damages, and one hundred fifty million in punitive damages. Okay. Yep. Um, and so, I I mean the numbers five to thirty five. Um, like the five million, I can I can buy, because at the end of the day, he um, like he would have been a hero, like when when he saved the the kids, and so there's book deals and there's television appearances and speaking uh, engagements that he could have got that maybe he didn't because of the like the the pedo guy yeah. shadow hanging over him. 
But um, do, 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 the, do the punitive damages, does that depend upon the wealth of the person? I'm not sure. Because um, they're there to deter the person from doing it again. Yeah. Does that mean that they have to have it relative to his wealth? I have no because idea. Obviously, that's like, that's if, going to depend on the state obviously, and... Yeah, I just think, like, if you know, if you got, say, $100,000 in punitive damages, obviously that isn't that big of a deal for Musk, who's worth much more than that, who's worth billions. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it may be part of that. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, so, so, yeah, it does look like he's wanted, said that... Um, it, it did not meet the legal standard for defamation. Um, and as a result, Musk will not be liable for damages. So I think either way, the uh, the fact that it's gone to a trial and he's actually had to face up to, to these things, um, I think is a, a good outcome. And it probably meant to line by itself. Yeah. Um, and whether legally it was defamation, it's like, like what he did was bad. And I think that everybody can see that now. And he's taken a hit on his reputation, uh, for making those tweets. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, legal, legal things can get caught up in the details and the technicalities. And so like, this is why you have sort of such difficulty when certain people commit crimes and you can't necessarily convict them because there's not enough evidence. Um, and in this case, it's not the evidence. It's the fact that there's a very strict definition. Um, and I think that it came down to, from what I was listening to on a podcast this morning, it came down to a question of whether Musk acted uh, recklessly negligent uh, and... And so there's, again, like there's fairly stringent tests and it depends on obviously where the trial happens and what law is being applied. But in Australia, the negligence test is fairly stringent. It's fairly difficult to to meet uh, the requirements for negligence uh, just because it's a negligence when, like say, you're speaking in everyday language is different to the legal definitions of negligence and so it's they have to sort of really prescribe what it is in a legal test and so all of these things sort of become uh, much more much more technical and much more difficult to fit into the box uh, than just everyday parlance Mm -hmm. yeah but i think that yeah it's, it's it'll at least he's now had two in in the space of a year and a half or so he's had two big mistakes on twitter so <laughs> um i think he's probably going to be more careful from now on yeah i think so too um and so the google founders stepped down as well yeah. this week that's interesting yeah um so they were the C- co-ceos of uh, alphabet which obviously owns Google, um, and Alphabet is sort of the parent company, and they do a bunch of other things, other cool things. Um, they do driverless cars. They were doing a flying car for a bit. Um, they do a, a range of really cool things, and then uh, 
Google is a subsidiary and Sundar Pichai is uh, the CEO of Google and he's now going to be the CEO of Alphabet as well. Um, and I don't think it's going to have a huge amount of um, an effect, at least early on. Um, because In the company got, itself? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, Larry and Sergey still, I think, hold like 90% of the voting voting power. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're still going to be on the board. Um, so they, they're, they're stepping away from day-to-day management. Um, but they're still, I think, going to be fairly heavily involved. Um, there was some interesting talk about the fact that Sundar Pichai is he's pretty good at getting rid of wasteful projects mm-hmm. um, and like getting other projects across the line. Um, so under him, I think he's been there since about 2015. They've seen the whole hardware division uh, with the, the pixel phones come, come into being since then they've seen the speakers and the, um, the different like, uh, screens that you can get that like have Google Assistant built into them. So since he's come in, he's got some products out the door. Yeah, they're so, good too. Yeah. And so I think that the thing that people are most interested in will be what he can do with those other Alphabet companies that are doing those other things and if he can push those across the line as well. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it's going to have too much to do with the running of what they have now because it's it's not really like you can kind of screw it up i don't feel yeah like if you if you had google just ticking along as it was now um it'd be doing very well you need to have those extra extra things coming online in the future yeah i think you there's definitely a a element of that because google is like 95 percent advertising and like 10 years into the future, that may not be as uh, lucrative a business. True. Like you don't know. And so I think you that never they... know where advertising is going to go. So, yeah. And like, I mean, the advertising businesses 10 years that were operating 10 years ago didn't think it was going to go the way it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, they are now not players anymore. And so. I think that it's a, it's a smart move for them to start looking at diversification of that, that revenue stream. Definitely. Um, and they are in a good position to do it with Alphabet. And so take it, taking Sundar Pichai up and seeing the technologies that they've got and being able to work directly on those other things, other projects, I think is a good good move because if there's things there that can be implemented into google to diversify google's revenue streams like he's the person to do it Mm. google and the ai is what i find most interesting yeah like where where they're going to go with that eventually yeah i think ai ai in general is a a very interesting topic um and there's like i I just think they're so well placed for it as well well yeah they've got i think the the right products that they can they can use it, um, and they've got they've got the brand that is going to attract the talent as well, um, as long as it remains managed well, 
which I think is one of the one of the other issues. There's been some like some things bubbling just below the surface at Google for a little while um, in terms of employee unrest. And so I think that may be part of why Larry and Sergey got out, um, just so that they don't have their reputations tarnished by being forced out of the company. Um, but yeah, it'll it'll definitely be interesting to see where the AI goes. Um, like if it, have you seen the videos floating around with the deep fakes that? They're so good at the moment. Yeah, and. So I think that that's one thing that they definitely need to be rolling out on platforms like YouTube, uh, like detection of those deep fakes. And that's that's basically what AI is going to be really, really useful for. Um, and then, like, they've got their, like their office, like, like Google Docs and Google Sheets and stuff. And sometimes it's great. Like some, Like, obviously, we use it for making the notes for the podcast and it's great for those sorts of things but then sometimes I just like look at it like why is this not a feature um like for ages they their um grammar like grammar checking in google docs I still Mm. don't think there's any grammar checking in google docs actually I think we talked about this a while on the podcast too is this it was due to potentially issues with microsoft having rights to certain tools or yeah, so I think there's an element of that, but then there are other word processors out there that do grammar checking. I don't, um, I don't know, I don't know how that thing would be like reserved just for Microsoft though. Like, how can you patent that? Yeah, I know like that grammar they, checking. It's there has been some sort of a strategy at Google to be sort of one or two steps behind Microsoft at all times, just not so as not to attract the attention, but. They're like Google Docs and Google Sheets as well. They are just critically underpowered for a user that is like sort of using those programs for more than just basic functions. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, if they were on par with Microsoft products, then they'd be the ones that I'd be using because you know that they're instantly backed up when you when you use them so you don't have the the risk of actually losing any of your files well i mean uh, microsoft products have that now if you have a onedrive account you can instantly yeah, like true. save it all to your onedrive and so there's no issue there um but that's but like the other day i was doing something in google sheets i was building a, a sheet for something and i realized that there's no solving function in google sheets <laughs> and yeah. Like that just seems like a fairly basic, a fairly basic feature of a, a spreadsheet application to have because it limits completely what you can do if you can't solve for answers. Mm-hmm. Like you can track your your expenses and make a calendar and do some simple like adding and multiplying stuff, but if you can't like back solve for things, it makes those spreadsheets a bit more complex to build. Um, which is, yeah, a bit, a bit weird that it's not in there. This might be a silly question, but with uh, with complex Excel sheets, you know how on like a Microsoft product, it can kind of like slow your computer down. Does Google do the processing for 
their Google Sheets. Like if you have a complex calculation happening in it, does the calculation happen on their servers or is your computer doing the calculation? I'm actually not sure. Because I was just like, because I just think like it's a web-based platform. So they're just sort of pinging back and forth what the results are. Yeah. Whereas the program itself, your computer's having to calculate. Yeah. So I wonder um, if I wonder if the reason why they've sort of limited their capability is that they don't want people to sort of overload the computing capacity. Okay. Apparently, it runs locally within the browser. I just looked at. Okay, there you go. Um, so, and it makes sense because you can work in Google Sheets offline. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And so there are some functions which won't work, uh, but the like the Google Finance function won't work if you're offline. But yeah, it does all the, the calculations locally. Okay, well, that answers my question. And obviously that runs, again, it runs within the browser and I assume that would create constraints and so that yeah. may be why they don't have a solver function, but it does just, it feels like it's, I don't know why they can't just make a desktop app for it. So it mm, can run, that'd be nice. on, um, run on your desktop and then take full, uh, like take full uh, control of, of the resources of the computer and uh, be able to have things like a solver or even like an iterative solver. Um, like in in uh, Excel, for people who maybe don't know, you have sort of two ways of solving things. You've got goal seek, which effectively you say, I want this cell to equal uh, like whatever number by changing another cell. And so it'll literally just change the cell, see if it got closer and like keep changing the cell until it gets as close as it can to the number you've asked for. And so that's doing it in an iterative fashion and it works fairly well. Um, but in some cases it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, and you also can't add any other constraints into it. You're basically just saying, set this to this by changing this. Um, and then there's a more advanced tool in there called uh, a sol- so it's called solver and in there you can set um you can set it to solve for something by changing a range of cells um you can make it solve for like maximums minimums you can set yeah, a bunch of constraints multiple constraints yeah that's very it's pe- so, very handy yeah and like this is like I did a course this this term at at uni called uh, interest rate risk management, and we use that like over and over again to solve different different features of bonds and options on bonds and stuff. Super necessary too. Like it would take you weeks <laughs> without it to 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 come to the same solution, especially with the data sets and stuff that you you use. So. Yeah, yeah super powerful. like when you got big data sets and then if you don't have it, I mean, you could always solve for it. Mm-hmm. You could always figure out how to solve it um, and then build your spreadsheet to solve it. 
but it would be much more difficult and it would be a less readable spreadsheet as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's one of those those weird things that I feel like Google would have the ability to build a good Google Docs, but they just haven't done it. And maybe people just aren't trying to use it enough. They they haven't felt the need to do it. But You could just have one person working on it, <laughs> like in the background. I'm sure it wouldn't take too long to to implement something. I'm not going to comment on that. I feel like it might be a, a little bit more complicated than one person, but um, it's definitely a, a fairly, it's not, it's not a complicated thing. Um, that and, and it's already been done, so the expertise is out there to get it done. It's just weird that they don't. There was um, some news out from the, the battery space this week as well. Yeah. So Hyundai... Um, announced that they were going to be investing $52 billion into electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. I think there was even something about flying cars in there as well, but (laughs) essentially this new new generation of vehicle, they're going to be investing $52 billion into it. And then we also had out this week, I I can't remember which one came first. I think it was, I think it was maybe Hyundai first. Yeah. And then LG Chem and General Motors announced a 50-50 joint venture for a, a $2.3 billion battery plant in Ohio. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so they're going to be doing it locally in the US, which I think is good. Um, it's sort of being looked at more of a uh, as a national security type thing, like being able to produce these batteries. Yeah. So I think we'll see more a lot more plants sort of pop up in the US over time because I think they're they're lagging quite a bit um, compared to say Europe or um, China so yeah definitely Um, so do you know if they're going to be making like the cells or just like assembling battery packs yeah they'll be um, I think they're making the cells there okay yep because there's been sort of talk about tesla maybe moving to making their own cells as well yeah um and i think the talk's been going on for a little while but it, i think it's it would definitely... be smart like to cut lg out or sorry panasonic out yeah they don't have to worry about dealing with them and especially if they have decent battery tech um you, you sort of don't need the uh what's the word for it Sure, don't need Panasonic there to to help you along with all the technicals. If, yeah, after I think, you've been doing I think it for the move will happen when they come up with a new battery, a new cell. Mm. Like you, you can bet your bottom dollar that they're working on it. Like some vastly improved cell that they've stumbled across some some way to do it. Um, and so I think that's when when that becomes what they're going to use, which will probably be in a new generation of of vehicles. To be honest, that that's when they'll break with Panasonic. Yeah, we well, see it with the acquisitions. Yeah, like, was it Maxwell Technologies and the other the other guys? I think they started with H, that um actually dealt with the the, the manufacturing. Capacitors. They they dealt with the manufacturing of the cells itself. Yeah. So they've got someone who's working on like cell tech and they've also got someone who's working on the manufacturing of those cells. So definitely, yeah, what you said, definitely will be coming out eventually. And it was quite an interesting bit of uh, like analysis I was reading on the ultra capacitors and how that might be able to be used. 
mm-hmm. depending on they need new cells effectively that can reduce the battery pack size and then they'll be able to fit an ultra capacitor in um, okay. which is like quite will, will be quite interesting yeah um, and the the yeah i mean i don't know really so hand they're going to be removing cells and putting in place an ultra capacitor in no so they would the the idea would be that if they could create a cell that effectively the the energy density is much higher so they can make the se- make the pack smaller and then they can fit an ultra capacitor in as well yeah right um so that you have the same sort of capacity but you also get the ultra capacitor which has like charging uh like charging capabilities i think like the regeneration would be really um strong yeah you're thinking about i'm um, thinking that more about like launch capabilities <laughs> yeah the, and that, that's with an ultra well. capacity god yeah, that'd be just, quick you could just off the mark yeah like run giant amounts of amps into the motors um i mean at that point you'd be getting like you'd be getting close to like what the tires can handle yeah yeah i think so too it's honestly you know that formula one cars are hybrid now uh i think i did see something about that yeah yeah i got um the f1 2019 ps4 game um (laughs) and i've been playing that and yeah they're hybrid and so there's a fairly big component of like the power management that's managing the um the battery and the where whereabouts does it kick in is it like at the start just the just initial acceleration yeah i think so and then the so it helps you initially accelerate and then i guess you uh, got regenerative it, braking yeah, as well it yeah. regens on the brakes and formula one cars can brake insanely well yeah and so uh it's not a huge battery in there but they regenerate on some of the more aggressive corners where you've kind of had a long straight and you go into a hairpin. Yeah. Uh, so you have to really slow down. They can regenerate 10% uh, just just through the one sort of braking period. 10% of the capacity of the battery? Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think it was... I can't remember where I was reading um, the conversion. It was like 70% efficient or something on regeneration from yeah. braking, which is pretty decent. That seems very high. Like you're capturing, yeah. Oh, you're capturing seventy percent of the energy, of of the like the kinetic energy. Okay, that makes more sense because you're definitely not capturing the same energy that you would use to go up the up the hill, or to accelerate again. I'd have to have a look again, but yeah. I just, this is just speaking from like my experience riding uh, the skateboards, which also have re- regenerative braking. And like you definitely use more energy going back up a hill and coming down on the brakes, um, but yeah, it makes sense. So if you're because there's inefficiencies in how the motor is going to operate going up, so you're going to use more more energy to go up than come back down. Okay, so it's sixty four percent. So I was close. It's still very good. So that I mean that's based on an eighty eighty percent um, um, net efficiency that you go in and out. So it's the same. It's the same efficiency that a battery would have um, when it goes in and then back out again. So yeah. obviously, if you're if you have less loss from your battery to your uh, motor, 
like it was like more like 90% then um, that's going to be much higher than, yeah. than if you're dealing with 80%. Yeah. So I'm just going to have a look at how the hybrid works in the Formula One car because they've had like sort of hybrid technology for a while. Uh, in They had a what was called the Kurs system and effectively they would get energy when they uh when they were braking and then they were able to use that on the straights like they would press a button and it would mm. like effectively kick in uh an electric motor but now they're they're actually fully hybrid yeah. um and but yeah they, they are only obviously able to regenerate the kinetic energy they're not regenerating um like in in your case, I think you were saying before, when you're going up a hill, you've obviously had a loss of potential energy there, um, and you're not going to be able to regenerate that back until you actually go down the other side of the hill. Yeah. When that potential energy converts back into um, kinetic energy. Yeah. So here it says that the energy recovery systems, such as Kurz, had a boost of 160 horsepower, and had two megajoules per lap. Jeez Louise. Like yeah. It's it's pretty insane what they can do. Mm. Very insane. Um but yeah so, that was that was interesting little um tidbit there on like what's happening in the battery space because that brings it up to I think it's hundred and nine or maybe even hundred and ten after that announcement of that that plant for the uh battery plants worldwide. Yeah. And that's up from 53 a year earlier. Wow. Yeah. So that's in the pipeline up until 2028, I believe. Okay. So, yeah, there's definitely... I mean, we're leaning heavily, heavily into into battery technology now. Yeah. But um, uh, the the interesting thing about the Hyundai one is that they wanted to be a, a top three producer of these electric vehicles by 2025. Wow. And they're and they're late to the party. Like I don't think they've even started really. I, I'm sure they've they've probably started some. Oh, obviously, but uh, like they're they're one of the the latest the latest um, entrants. Yeah. Yeah. So they, pro- they probably don't have anything sort of ready to even show anyone. Otherwise, they would have now. Uh, but having LG behind them is is good because LG that's for General make- Motors. Oh, that's General Motors. Yeah, that's General okay. Motors. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but in, in General Motors, it's great to have LG on site because oh, they definitely. do make some really, really good cells. Mm. Um, like they're, they're uh, 28650s, I think, is what the Teslas use. And they're, um, they're, they're, their LG ones are, are pretty good. And they've got a, a big range of cells as well. Um, the other thing I want to talk about today as well was, well, we, we mentioned litigation capital management last week because it was basically not going that well. And since last week, it's rallied like 20, 28% or something. Wow. Um, and there hasn't been really anything released to the market that's new. I think the, uh, the company's been doing a bit of marketing. Yeah of themselves to investors. I know I watched a presentation this week and uh, it was interesting. They've got a new product essentially that no one's 
sort of doing at the moment in the litigation space because at the moment the problem is obviously you're going to have like a binary outcome with these single cases either winning or lose and if you lose you know you've lost your money essentially you lost your initial investment um so it it heavily depends on your due diligence to 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 accurately predict what the outcome of the case is going to be yeah um but what they're looking at now is doing these corporate portfolios where they actually develop a relationship over time and they lump multiple cases together into this one portfolio that's then secured against, I've forgotten the words for it, but the loan, something about the collateralized loan or something. Anyway, it's essentially their, the way the contract is written is that they must get back all of their money first from the whole portfolio. So say if you lose on one or two of the cases out of a portfolio of 30, well, that money is still lumped into the other, the other, the other cases. So it's, it basically reduces the risk uh, um, of that binary outcome of that single case. Yeah. So I think right now they effectively when a case is won they take a portion of the winnings and so from what i'm understanding you're saying if one or two of the cases lose there's still sort of a minimum threshold from the portfolio that needs to be needs to be paid out yeah and so from that gets taken out of the winnings from the other cases that's correct yeah okay yeah. So I wonder the, how that would how that would look to the companies they they try to pitch that to. Well, they said that the basically the way it works is they do it cheaper than a single okay. case because it's lower risk. Yeah. So they're able to do it much cheaper. Um so essentially for the companies it's the way it looks it's better apparently for their accounting. Like instead of having like a legal team and spending all this um, money on their internal internal team and all that litigation, they can outsource it. So instead of it looking like a liability, it's now like an income for them, like it's a potential asset. Yeah. So it looks better for them uh, on their on their financial statements to have an external litigation funder come in and do the work for them even though they're actually taking a cut of that of that money yeah i guess um, especially in it takes well, the risk out of it this, for them as well the whole industry is predicated on bringing lawsuits so it's not like lit wouldn't be able to fund uh, defense well that's the thing they they in this corporate portfolio they can do defense oh yeah so essentially where they weren't able to do defense before obviously they're not going to make any money out of it they can now fund uh, a defense because say if they're say if they've um, contributed 10 million dollars to a corporate portfolio and they're expecting to make i don't know let me just say 30 million dollars yeah. They they can fund a million dollar defense in there for a, a different a different case. And that's yeah. just part of the contract that it's all lumped in that they can fund multiple defense cases now 
in addition to the others. So they're actually able to generate more business. And the good thing about it is that with the single cases, they're basically spending a whole bunch of time, you know, building up this relationship. Um, and then they'd have the case and it was done. Whereas now there's a, a more of a rotation. So they will uh, finish cases. They might finish two cases, but then there might be another two that can get lumped back in to the portfolio yeah. and they'll just basically um, fix the terms of the, the contract and then they'll go again um, with those extra two. So it's a more of like a rolling yeah, rolling. I wonder if there have. would be a, a effectively sales channel through big law firms and they don't necessarily need to be held to just one company uh, like a, a portfolio. It can be held against a portfolio of cases that a law firm is handling. And oh, so that right. might be spread across different companies. Mm-hmm. And the obviously the, the contract gets written between the law firm and the... Uh, actually, no, would that... Well, I guess, yeah, it could work. You mean the other law firms? Well, no, the contract gets written between a law firm and the company they're representing, right? Mm-hmm. And so they have certain fees that they charge and I guess they could provide effectively discounted fees. Actually, I don't know. I'd have to like figure this one out. Yeah, over, it's, um, it's, it's a, a new a product anyway. It's, it's yeah. new and it hasn't, it hasn't really been done in the litigation space yet. So I'm because really... Because what I'm thinking is basically, you know when you go to buy a car yeah, yeah. and the, the dealership has financing facilities mm-hmm. so they can find... So, if a law firm was able to offer, hey, we've got litigation financing available um, should you need it, and then um, they wouldn't even need to maybe even discount it. Um, they could just say, okay, here's a litigation financing, and uh, it may allow if there's law firms going out and trying to, because it happens, law firms go out and try to get cases Mm-hmm. And say, like, they go to companies and say, this, this, and this has happened. We think you should bring a case against these people. Um, and so they may have a bit more scope to do that because they'd be able to go to companies who maybe can't afford to bring those cases and uh, provide financing on it. So, yeah, that would be, that would be interesting. Um, I, uh, I'm interested to watch it because Burfitt hasn't recovered, have they? No, they haven't recovered yet. Um, but they were they were hit pretty hard by their. Uh, I mean, lit- litigation capital management hasn't really recovered either. Like it's bounced off its lows by twenty eight percent. That doesn't really mean anything yet. Like, yeah, it won't really mean much until they're up another, you know, twenty percent odd from where they are now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they'll they'll hit pretty hard by their accounting practices, and their um, I think it's. The, the way that they were doing it, like they were very aggressive with their, it's called, is it fair value accounting? Yep. Um, where they basically had, they forecasted the outcomes of the cases and what they would receive and then it would be booked on the statement as opposed to waiting until it's actually completed. Yeah. And the problem was that they were, they were booking these large, very large cases millions and millions of dollars in settlements um, before the case had actually even concluded. Yeah. And the, and the difference was with litigation capital management, they were they were not doing that. They were 
basically waiting until the case had finished and then booking it as it as it came in. Yeah. So they weren't they weren't accounting for it before it actually um, before they actually received it. And uh, yeah, I guess it's a little bit misleading. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, interesting space. Um, it was a really interesting video actually. It was just a them in the boardroom with a couple of other. I'm assuming they were investors um, talking about the new corporate portfolio structure. At the moment, they only have two. Yeah. They have two corporate portfolios. One is with a, uh, something in the housing sector. And yeah. I think that's made up of seven individual cases. And the other one is with a, uh, aircraft company, which is made up of 38 cases. Okay. So I'm not exactly sure who it's that is. Aircraft company Boeing. I'm assuming it wouldn't it's, be good. I'm a, I don't know who who it is, but yeah, I'm assuming it's Boeing. Who knows? Um, I feel like if it was Boeing, that information would be out, and people would yeah. be running from the stock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that they they got two of those, and um, it's not really going to have a material impact on revenues. They said until probably a couple of years so it's it's very very early in development yeah they would have to start to one get people like get get the industry aware of the product and start selling it and then there's a couple of years sort of timeline between when they first make the sale and when they start to see revenues from it yeah this way as well they have much more say in in what happens with the case itself. Like they're brought in very early on and they actually sit alongside the directors. Whereas before with traditional litigation financing, they kind of they kind of try to finance it themselves through their own internal teams, right? And then eventually they might get halfway through the case and they go, Oh, oh shit, we've actually run out of money, you know. So then they go to these litigation funders, which then go, okay, well, let's have a look. And yeah. they're the very bottom end of the uh, bottom end of the pile where they don't really have a choice in what law firms they use. They don't have a choice in what um, facts or anything to bring forward. It's, it's, very, um, it's very different compared to being able to select which cases they can and cannot do. And then also... Um, they know more details of the case as well, you know, sitting alongside of the directors. Because basically they do it like a holistic approach. It's like, what is your strategy for raising this case? Like, why are you doing it? Yeah. Whereas before, previously, they're not really privy to to that information. Like their overall strategy. It's just, yeah. yeah. They're just providing the financing for it. Yeah, exactly. It's just, we, we want your money and um, that's about it. Yeah. And um yeah, you basically you you deal with the risk of the outcome of the case. Yeah, it'll it'll certainly be one that I'll I'll be keeping an eye on going forward. Mm. Uh just out of interest as well. It's, uh, it's an interesting concept. I love it. Absolutely yeah. love it. Compared to the binary case, I think yeah. it makes so much more sense. Yeah, well, even then, litigation financing in general is, is very interesting. Because then you can not just out- already been done. Yeah, exactly. And then you can just outsource yourself to like all these other companies, and you basically sit with them, and you just run a continual book of cases for them, and they don't have to really worry about anything. 
Yeah. They can just keep coming to you with new cases. I uh, guess it, it then comes down to having really good risk management and making sure none of those portfolios blow up. Yeah, exactly. It'd be pretty bad if one of them did because of yeah. the capital commitments. But Yeah. Um, so you had something in here about employers asking too much. Yeah, so I, there was, like, it's not about myself because I'm not looking for law jobs, but I just, just thinking about it this week, like, are, are some places expecting too much from their employees, future employees and graduates? So basically, the story is there's a, a law firm, like a low-level mid-tier law firm, asking for basically the best student with the best marks entrepreneurial mind you know to work extended hours i'm not really sure what extended hours means at a law firm it's very Um, long but i'm assuming it's it's like a standard 60 hour week kind of thing um like a 12 hour day yeah i mean it it would depend i i can imagine it'd be very similar to investment banking where your average week is going to be 50 to 60 hours yeah. And then your big weeks are going to be like 80, 90, 100 hour weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, these extended hours. So basically, they're asking for the best student possible with these extended hours, um, which doesn't make much sense to me. If, if it's going to be extended all the time, you, maybe you should raise the, the salary. But anyway, they were looking to pay 50, 60 grand per year for that position. Yeah. And like when you work it out, it's um it's roughly, you know, a thousand a thousand dollars or a thousand two hundred for the week. And if it's the same sort of range for hours, you know, you're getting paid twenty dollars an hour kind of thing. Yeah. If you work it out on an hourly basis if you're doing the extended hours. And I just wondered yeah. if that's if that's ask is that asking too much from a graduate when you can really go and do that anywhere else. Anywhere else can pay you $20 a week. Now, I know the argument, obviously, it's, it's a starting position and you're not going to be making $20 an hour forever. But I wonder if they're kind of, because of the nature of of the role and how competitive it is to actually get into it, if they're sort of exploiting graduates here that are sort of desperate for jobs in these, yeah. in these firms. Yeah, no, there definitely is a level of that. And I think, I think it's Allen's that is being investigated by the a, the ACCC, I think. Oh no, okay. by Fair Work. Sorry. Um, uh, around this specific issue is that they expect junior lawyers to put in insane like hours mm. uh, for very little pay, like. You said when you break it down to an hourly basis, it's very little pay. Um, well, there's another example of a, a company secretary, secretary at a at one of these firms, and it was um, they were asking for, I think it was a hundred dollars a day. Yeah. You know, and if you're working your standard standard day, that's a little over ten dollars. Ten dollars so, an hour. Yeah, I mean, if you work a ten hour day, it's ten ten dollars an hour. Yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 difficult. Um, I think like a secretary position is that's probably not appropriate. Mm. But in the position of like a junior lawyer, like a first year lawyer, second year lawyer, like 
I just think like if you compare it to say like a cleaning wage, cleaners get between an average twenty to twenty five dollars an hour. Yeah. And I would think you're more qualified than not that I've got anything against cleaners. You know, they're yeah. lovely. Well but, like, you, you in, are, you know, but I think that you're you're getting compensated in other ways. Um, non-monetary ways and I think one of those is actually like the earning potential that you gain from working in these firms Um, if you stay the course and you do really well and like you could be earning hundreds of thousands of dollars like Mm -hmm. you could be start like if you become a partner in these firms your your earning is insane Um, and so if you go and become a cleaner or you go and become like you go and work somewhere that's probably paying you better you're not necessarily going to have that capacity like that career capacity and so economically you have to take that into account for sure is that you you've got compensation on a different uh, of a different kind in there uh and but there's also the the fact that a lot of these people are going to leave after a couple of years, and so putting too much investment into them is is dangerous for the firm, especially when their margins are getting squeezed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a competitive industry; like there's limited seats, and so the the argument the argument from the firms is like, well, if you don't want to do do that work for that amount of pay like that's fine someone else will do it exactly exactly. and so and this is why you get these jobs that are less attractive that pay much better because there's not as many people who want to do them like it's simple supply and demand like did you see did you see this this stuff about uh the lollipop people like with the um stop and go signs no so there was uh Currently, they make around a hundred to a hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. Wow! Yeah, and there was a a push in, I think it was Queensland, working on a particular project to move it up to a hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year. Oh my god! And I was like, I'm in the wrong job. I need to be doing a, <laughs> I need to be yeah. a stop and go man. Like, yeah, yeah. So well, yeah, I was just. Work- they work in pretty like, it's, tough conditions. Yeah, I mean, they're out um, in the sun all day. And they're, either they're um, out in the sun all day or they're out at night a lot of times, like on roadworks and stuff, like when they do it at night and they have to stand there all night. Mm. Um, but I think $180,000 is... That's fairly excessive. That's uh, That's more than enough compensation for me to want to do that job. <laughs> yeah, I would be very okay with with standing outside all night to get $180,000. Definitely. It's so, interesting actually in Sydney, like there's obviously a lot of roadworks that go, that go on around here. Um, and I've like, there are those traffic directors mm-hmm. um, wherever you get roadworks. And it's often these like young, attractive girls doing it, mm-hmm. which is, it seems odd to me that <laughs> that is enticing, but I, I don't know. I guess it must pay really well and you it's fairly flexible and you only work like three nights a week or something. But Yeah, yeah I mean if you're odd, on an like, annualize if you're on a salary of like a hundred thousand dollars, like it's definitely worth it. Yeah. And I very I very rarely see 
males doing that job. Yeah. So I think we're being discriminated against. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just an odd odd anomaly I've noticed. I don't know but, I don't yeah. know why it is that way. But Yeah. But yeah, interesting sort of supply demand dynamic where you have essentially like you have these junior lawyers getting exploited for um you know under you know 18 to 20 dollars an hour um rate versus versus you've got uh um the stop and go people who are you know clearing 100 plus k a year no worries yeah i think that there is economically there's an argument to say that they're getting compensated in other ways i mean if you go and work at a a big law firm the knowledge you take on would be insane Mm. like the amount the amount that you would learn and uh therefore develop your career and develop the possibilities that you can go on and do so many different things like laws are very if you go and become a lawyer it's a very versatile skill set um and so i think that in law there definitely is is that like it's not so much of an issue in in banking um investment banking is like notoriously similar to that where you're working crazy hours and when you boil it down it doesn't have super good um it doesn't have like super good compensation but like a first year investment banker can clear over a hundred thousand dollars um and then it goes up fairly quickly and once you become a vp you're making several hundred thousand like you're like you're doing okay um and it, it doesn't take that long to get to that level but i think in law it takes a little bit longer yeah i was gonna say what's the ramp up i wonder yeah in sort of like what what can you like say your entry is 50 to 60 what's your what's your salary going to be like in five say 10 years time yeah i think i think i can imagine it would be about 20 percent a year Mm. uh, for the first couple of years um but is that 50 to 60 including a bonus uh I don't know if it had anything about bonuses. I'd have to reread the. I'd have to reread. I doubt it would include bonuses. Mm. That would just be. That's a fairly significant part of um, compensation in those sorts of firms. Is is the bonus? Like in banking, it's a huge thing. Like people can get bonuses of like their salary. Hundred percent bonus. Yeah, (laughs) like it's it's not an unheard of thing. Yeah, that's Um, crazy. It's it's winding down, like obviously since the GFC, it's wound down a little bit. Um, but in the eighties, it was like um, you read Michael Lewis's book, and they got signing bonuses of like fifty percent of their salary. <laughs> so like before they've done any work, they've yeah. just got like fifty grand. Yeah, um, that's insane. Yeah, it's just it's absolutely ridiculous. But um, no, it's not an ideal situation. But I also think that. It, it's supply and demand at the end of the day and if everyone wants to be a lawyer well like you can't really fix that that problem too well because it doesn't matter what laws you put on it like like what you do it's just it's there's going to be exploitation happening there because law is such a lucrative career and there's so many people trying to become lawyers and if someone complains well they can leave and someone else will do the job exactly yeah always the case yeah if you don't like it don't work here basically mm. and like what capacity does the the junior lawyer have to take the law firm 
to court over that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, like it's, it's not gonna it's not gonna go down well for them. Yeah. Well, it was. Uh, I don't know if I told you about this, but there was um, a law firm. One of the guys I know works at, and they have. Uh, you know how they have like Google reviews. Yeah. So basically, they were trawling through Google reviews at work, and they were suing people for defamation who were posting negative reviews. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I thought that was absolutely brutal. Um, but, yeah. Law f- I He works up in Sydney. I'm not going to name the name of the law firm or anything, but, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, suing suing the people who are posting negative Google reviews. But, oh, God. Yeah. I mean, they probably wouldn't go through it, but they'd, they'd send some some legal force their way. Yeah, they'd probably, they'd probably just try and get them down. to remove, remove yeah. it. I yeah. mean, you could probably scare someone pretty easy with a, a letter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, definitely. Like, they're probably just trying to get those review, reviews removed um, and they're not necessarily going to take anyone to court over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you see Afterpay's Black Friday and Cyber Monday results? Yeah, I was going to bring that up. That's bloody absolutely killed it. Yeah. So I think it was over those two days they cleared a billion dollars in underlying sales. Yeah. And I think they added, what was it, like 140,000 customers or something? Yeah. Over two days. Like the average was, I think, 15,000 a day. Yeah. And then now they're suddenly 70,000 a day. Yeah. Absolutely insane. It was it was huge and like big enough that they came out and made a separate announcements on it because a material change. Um, and it was like a growth of like over 100% from the same like Cyber Monday, Black Friday last year. Yeah, it was like 180%. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Obviously, they've entered the UK market since then and they've entered, they've started rapidly expanding in the US market. And so this is like their first big opportunity. And yeah, they just knocked it out of the park. It was really, really, uh, really, really big. And Interesting the obviously stock sold it's off a, on the news though of it. They, yeah, well, I think it was getting caught rallied, up. But then and, sold off. Yeah, I think it was getting caught up in the broader market a little bit. Yeah. Um, and also there's less, there's little clarity over how those underlying sales get converted to revenue for Afterpay. Um, so that's we're going to have to see in the next earnings release. Well, this was what I was going to say is that billion dollars in sales doesn't, that's not Afterpay sales. That's what they funded effectively. Yeah. Uh, that's what people bought using Afterpay. Um, and so they're not going to get all of that. I think they cut, what do they take? Two or 3%? Yeah, something like that. I can't remember what it is. So it's like still, over the net revenue, like what it's, what it is, but. Yeah, I think it may be like even a dollar fee. Um, yeah, not, okay. Not 100% sure what their fee structure is. And I think they will have um, proprietary fee structures with bigger businesses and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's that was huge. And then. Next year, I think it's going to continue to grow because if they continue to grow their user base, mm-hmm. then they're going to have sort of those results again, plus any results they get from eBay. Yeah. Because they're going to launch on eBay next year. So 
that's going to be big as well. Um, so yeah, the stock's taken a little bit of a beating down recently, but I mean, it's still it's still tracking like nicely, trend wise. It's a very volatile stock, but it's um it's still moving on the same trend. Yeah. Um. Did you see? <laughs> I know we talked about this before. That I signed this, the ISX. Yeah. Company. Did you see their announcement? No, I didn't. So the company has commenced legal proceedings against the ASX. Against the ASX. The, yeah, in the Federal Court of Australia to challenge the decisions made by um, the exchange to suspend and not reinstate the company's shares for quotation on the exchange. Oh, my God. So this was, to refresh your memory, this was the one that um, essentially they had to hit a certain uh, revenue target for performance shares to be released yeah and the performance shares that were going to be released were like half a billion dollars worth like it was going to be insane and in the six month period they had to hit five million and they hit five million and two thousand (laughs) dollars so it was like super super questionable like obviously you know you could get your mate to be like oh you know you know buy this you know we need it. We need to get this over the the five mil mark. I'll give you a mil. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially when there's five hundred mil riding on it. Absolutely yeah. insane. Um, but yeah, now they've they've chosen to actually um, actually commence legal proceedings, which I thought was super super strange that they would even bother bother to do that. But ASX didn't come up with, come out with any announcement. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think they're worried about it at all. Yeah, I've got a. Um an article up here and apparently they've I signed this has confirmed that about a quarter of its revenue from 2019 was derived from customers that are subject to major regulatory action including criminal charges being laid against associated people for allegedly running online trading scams oh my god um the um it looks like they've got um yeah, they they've got a huge range of issues. Um, I'm not. I don't think that they're gonna get very far with the. If um, this starts trading again, my god, that's gonna be an interesting day. Yeah. To watch trading. That'll be crazy. Because they've they've been out of the market for so long. How long and have they've they been also, out for now? Like a couple of months. Uh yeah, I think it was like start of yeah, I think it's start of October. So yeah, a couple of months. Um, so they've been out for a while and um, in that time they've had heaps of heaps of publicity as well yeah so you'd I have... feel so bad for those investors yeah I feel terrible for them like I mean, you just can't get your money out yeah exactly kind of stuck yeah um, like yeah because there's no recourse to get your money out is, is there no, the only other ways if you can kind of if you can get a broker to buy it or something. Yeah, or you can transfer your shares to someone. Like I saw, I saw online that there was a few people kind of trying to sell their shares at a discount. <laughs> sell sell like, them on for, Facebook Marketplace. Well, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. They were they were selling them at like a steep discount. They're like, you know, someone take my shares for like fifty cents. Oh my you know, god! And it, it was last trading at a dollar ten. Yeah. Um, dollar ten ish. So yeah. <laughs> go, go post just, your shares on Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> post them on Gumtree. 
Oh. I pick up only. The the dark pool. The dark pool of fi- Facebook Marketplace. My God. Imagine that actually became a thing. Like, yeah, there was such a crazy, like, failure in a stock or an exchange that that started happening. Yeah, yeah. That would be insane. Yeah. But, yeah, I feel but, um, so bad for those investors. Yeah. Um, yeah but sure. interesting that the company's trying to fight for... I haven't looked into the reason why they're actually trying to get reinstated. Well, apparently they're, they're here saying... it says that they've... The ASX uh, used its powers uh, to... Where does it say this? They they use their powers to make I sign this uh, handover confidential information, which was later leaked. Um, and so I think it, it's got to do with that more so than... Um, what about... I wonder if the directors are trying to offload their shares too. I mean, it would be... It would be really... Look really bad if they did that. But I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I, I feel like they just want to get their money out of the business and run. Yeah. I mean, if they... They obviously, obviously cooked the books a little bit. <laughs> I mean, you don't you don't come in and, like, get $2,000 over the... Yeah, but it wasn't only just that as well. It's like their revenue for the... The, the, the following period was basically nothing. Their, their revenue suddenly disappeared. Yeah, and after apparently, they got their... Yeah, apparently that $5 million was like recurring revenue. But then where did it go after? It's like it's, <laughs> it's gone. It stopped recurring. <laughs> just, just happened to stop recurring. So, yeah. Sorry, those customers got their bonus. <laughs> <laughs> they, they no longer need to generate these revenues. <laughs> Yeah, so. yeah, it's obviously a very dodgy, dodgy thing, and um, yeah, I don't, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they suddenly just flood the market with a bunch of orders to to sell their stocks. <laughs> but yeah, I guess, I guess we'll we'll see where it goes. Um, so, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about today? Um, nothing really finance related. I watched some. I watched an interesting doco, I'm pretty sure, on carbon capture. Yeah. And how, how um, a few oil... It's not really getting any... It's not getting any um, government funding at the moment, but it's getting a lot of funding from uh, the oil companies, obviously. Yeah. Like, if, if we're able to capture carbon, um, means they can burn more oil, so yeah. sort of gives them a green light. But either way, they're, they're still funding the, the development of... Um, development of the projects but i yeah. think it was this one plant that did the work of 40 million trees oh really yeah and i mean it's of course it's different because like you could turn it on instantly you don't have to wait for the 30 years for the tree to grow yeah before it's at peak peak sort of capacity and the way it works is they they channel this air through this uh device machine and they have a solution that they drip down yeah from the top and it, and it um, binds with the CO2 in the air and they take that solution off and I think they fire it and they turn it into calcium calcium carbonate, um, which you can just... It's just a pellet, basically. Yeah. And, and you can bury it underground that way. Um, How much of, energy does that use? I, I would have to go back and have a look. Yeah. It's... I think it's... Well, it's it's more about the solution, like it's... The solution's capturing the carbon out of the air, and then it's 
the the main sort of drag on energy is going to be the fan, which I can't be imagine is too much. But then the main would be the the furnace itself. Yeah. To, to fire it and turn it into the pellets. Well, I guess um, it's I guess the development they would be doing is trying to get the energy down low enough, the energy required down low enough, so that it offsets the it would be net that positive. you're going to put. Yeah. Like if you were to burn, I'm sure if you were to burn like oil to power it, it would be net positive. Um, otherwise, it just wouldn't make sense. Really, they're, well, they're saying they're that they're going to be trying to make it net positive. Yeah, I think I think the reason they're trying to make it, well, one of the ways they're doing it, making it positive, is just through renewable energy. Yeah, they're just powering it with renewables during the day. So, yeah, I think it was like wind and solar. Um, but yeah, that was um that was an interesting thing I saw, and also. Have you noticed the amount of people jumping into minimalism on uh, on YouTube lately? Yeah, it's been a bit of a... It comes in waves. Um, <laughs> like Matt Diavello is the, the godfather, I guess. Yep. Um, and like he makes... Have you ever watched the minimalism documentary on Netflix? Yeah, I did watch that. Yeah, yeah. so he made that. Um, and he's got a YouTube channel and he makes like really, really high quality videos about minimalism and things like that. And it's definitely a trend. Um, and there's... There was, because it was, um, you know, Alex Becker? I know the name. You probably would have seen his ads on YouTube. Yeah. He, he does like click funnels and um Oh yeah, marketing. I've seen his ads, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he <laughs> he's basically sold everything and he's... <laughs> I watched his I watched his like house tour and he's like how dare they think they are woke like I am the wokest <laughs> of of the minimalists. <laughs> yeah, well you watch those it house tours and they literally has nothing in his house. Like he's like that minimalist has a couch. How dare he? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> you watch you watch these minimalists have to jump on the trend and yeah. they'll do these like house tours cuz that's kind of like the big thing is showing your minimalist apartments or whatever. Mm. and they'll have to justify every single thing they've got. And it's often these, like, these geeks, right? Yeah. And who are into, like, YouTube and they're... And so they've got, like, nothing in their apartments and then they've got their $3,000 camera and their (laughs) $5,000 iMac Pro. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, right, okay. So you're not a minimalist, you're just broke because you bought all this expensive equipment. But yeah, it is a trend. I think it's definitely, I think it's got some merit. Like obviously you don't want to be too too materialistic and let things take over, but it's just a, it's like another wave that's sort of happening on YouTube, yeah. it looks like. Well, like there's also the whole like financial minimalist thing or like the financial... Um, like the people who are trying to be super frugal and don't like I, like things I don't spend money on. And yeah, like Graham Graham Stevens is good for that. Yeah, he posts and he posts a lot on that. Like the, this whole trend of spending as little as possible, um, which is a questionable idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> um, just to sort of round out here, I did want to say that. Did you watch Joe Rogan's podcast with... No, I didn't um, actually get a chance to watch it last night. I went to put it on and got interrupted. Man, it was crazy. It's like it's like four hours long. Yeah, um, I saw that. <laughs> and it's, 
I mean, he he was kind of shit stirring a little bit towards the end of it. Uh, oh, actually, no. When he when he posted on Instagram, he was like, "This takedown was so so well executed that I'm considering taking the original episode down." <laughs> and like, <laughs> uh, it obviously riles people up, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but effectively, you know, you know the Game Changers documentary. On, I haven't watched it myself. I haven't watched it either. Mm. but effectively it's this documentary that was going around and everyone was like they'd watch it and they'd go vegan because they had been convinced mm-hmm. and there were some questionable things put in the documentary um there were some questionable like what look i mean <laughs> don't be afraid to say it <laughs> um so so there were some the way the documentary was constructed they only provided the like the vegan perspective on things. They didn't provide mm-hmm. any other, like the other side of things. Mm-hmm. And then they also, the way they phrased things in the documentary, like there was one thing where they they uh, compared the way that the meat industry funds research to get like research out that says meat's not bad for you. They compared that to the way the cigarette industry funds research into cigarettes or used to fund research into cigarettes. And effectively, if you just if you're an uninformed watcher, like uninformed viewer, and you're just sort of what like watching this and you're getting wrapped up in the arguments, the way you would walk away from that specific section is that meat causes cancer. And it's just it's just as bad as smoking eating red meat which is not true no um it's it's much harder to to maintain a healthy vegan diet than it is to maintain your standard diet with um meat in it yeah so basically this podcast so what happened is this documentary came out everyone was like saying oh it's, well, it's a win for vegans like clearly the vegan diet is the best diet and all this stuff and then Joe Rogan had this guy, Chris Kresser, on mm-hmm. his show like two weeks ago. And they basically go through and they, they do a takedown of the or debunking of the film. Show all these places where things are wrong, point out these inconsistencies, these tactics that. they're using. And then on yesterday's episode, they had Chris Kresser on and the guy who made the documentary <laughs> and they basically went at it for four hours yeah yeah and the guy who makes the documentary he ruins chris Kresser. Like he he ruins his arguments really? um yeah but it's one of these cases where i think that the the arguments the the overall argument right is that and this is where i think he he fell a little bit is that the documentary is trying to make you go vegan. Mm-hmm. Like you can't argue that it's not trying to make you go vegan. But what Cressa was saying is, well, hang on, look, the, the best diet and the most realistic diet for most people, the, most, the safest diet for most people is going to be mostly plant-based, but with some meat in it, right? And this is what nutritionists have been saying forever, they dug into details on things like uh, vitamin B12 and how you can get B12 
B12 from plants and if you wash your vegetables, you're going to get more or like whatever. Like they got really down into the details and they were going through these studies and like literally reading it, the studies on the podcast. And yeah, like through the rest of it, he definitely takes them down. Like the he debunked the debunking effectively, but he did, he didn't, at least from my perspective, he didn't address the main concern that this documentary can cause people to go onto a dangerous vegan diet and it do, like where they're not educated enough to do it safely and he, he didn't address that i think about it like the vegan diet um for like uh pregnant women like yeah. i'd be worried about that diet with a, a pregnant woman yeah um and getting all the nutrition needed in order to actually well, look, according to the studies, you can do it. Yeah. But the issue is you need to be aware of the sh- it's the where of the it, shortcomings are. Yeah. And, I mean, it's like if you do it and, like, it becomes fairly easy, you're going to supplement certain things, you're going to, like, whatever. But if you're uneducated and you – and this is where the, uh, the, document, the documentary is probably dangerous – is that it doesn't raise any of those points that you have to be vigilant about how you do it. Mm. And so people who watch it and think, oh my God, I'm going to get cancer as if I'm smoking from <laughs> eating red meat. I'm never That'll eating red meat again. That'll definitely change people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think that- for the most part, people don't really care though too much. I think people are like, well, you know, the people that I talk to, they're just like, oh, you know, I'm obviously not, I'm happy with meat. I'm, yeah. I wouldn't care I think if I had they- to- there is people who would get the, the people who are on the edge would get convinced by that, um, and so yeah, I think that that's what makes it a little a little bit dangerous. But um, yeah, it, it's a very interesting podcast to listen to because it was very confrontational, and the way Joe handles it, I think, was very good. Uh, he manages to get both sides of the arguments in. He kind of handled because the the guy who made the uh who made the the documentary is very type a he was very like uh in control of the room he was like shooting questions and interrupting and all this stuff and joe was able to sort of handle that for the most part and allow cressa who's much more reserved much more quiet had to take a bit more time to think about things and look at his notes and figure out things from and his notes. And that makes notes. you look bad too when that when that's happening. It, it makes, makes you look, look as though you're not, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. It makes you, it makes you look bad. And also uh, it gave the other guy space to jump in and keep shooting questions. And then he's like, oh, you haven't answered this or you haven't answered that. And it's like, because he doesn't really have time. Um, yeah, yeah. And Joe was able to handle that quite well. Yeah, um, that's good. So it was, it was, it was good to watch and I would recommend at least you watch part of it to see the dynamic in the room. Definitely. definitely. Uh, because yeah, that, that was really interesting. Um, and also there was one point where, I don't know, Jamie said something and Joe was like, he was really engrossed in it. Um, and he turns around and he kind of snaps at Jamie like, Jamie, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, there's a few, if you, if you go on YouTube and you look at videos of, like where like Joe gets mad at Jamie, yeah, um, it's quite funny. Um, <laughs> like th- there's a few ones where he 
um, like he turns it around and he's like, like he just like glares at him because he he's yep. he's um he said something or, but yeah, um, it, it's quite funny. Um, ha- do you have bad smoke down where you are? Uh, there was on, I think it was like two or three days ago. There was really bad smoke, but it's been pretty clear down here. We've been lucky. Yeah, it's it's really bad up here. I looked at a couple of pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Looked at a couple um, of pictures up there. My girlfriend they... yesterday she took a she took a photo out of our window, mm-hmm. um, and then like uh, went on an app and made a collage with a photo of like one of the rovers took on Mars and the photo she took out the window. And they look almost identical. <laughs> there was um, something around that equated it to smoking how much yeah. you have to smoke per day and i think it was down here in the illawarra area i think it was like three cigarettes a day yeah um but up there i think it's in the worst areas it's closer to like a pack a day yeah, yeah well, i'm, I'm so. considering taking up smoking I think <laughs> it'll provide me with some clearer air it's fresher air yeah, yeah. it's really bad um, yeah and then on the way home from my Bunnings exam sold out Bunnings sold out of the masks oh really yeah up there yeah well i i actually i think i should get one um if mm. it's gonna stay like this for a while and if it's gonna get worse too you know yeah. you want to be at least able to walk around outside it's not a bad thing yeah to have so well the other day i was um i was coming home from my exam and there was literally ash falling from the sky yeah like jeez it was yes yeah, it's, it's terrible yeah i mean if you can i'd probably i'd probably order a mask yeah. Just have it there just in case anyway. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of um, getting one of those um, Plague Doctor masks and walking around with that on. <laughs> like the ones with the big beak. Yeah. <laughs> I'm considering getting one of those. Just walk around with that on. Jeez. Like do, do the whole outfit. And just walk around as a Plague Doctor. That'd be pretty yeah. funny. <laughs> Anyway, we're hitting about two hours here, so we'll probably wrap up. Yeah, sounds good. 